Uh, Father, um, it seems like every week and, and almost every day at this point we hear of new wars and rumors of war and conflicts. We um, are also starting to get into the, the heart of our political season here in the United States and our hearts might be pooled between one extreme and another. And yet we know that you are Lord of all. We pray, Father, that we would trust you with all of these conflicts and calamities and controversies, with the confidence that you are the judge of the living and of the dead, that you are the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, and nothing escapes your gaze. In fact, nothing moves outside your sovereign hand. We pray, Father, that in the midst of all of these conflicts, that you would use them to make your gospel known. We don't know how. We don't need to know how. We pray that you would. We pray, Father, that out of hopelessness, people would come to you to seek hope. Out of conflict, people would come to you to find peace. In our times of discomfort, that we would come to you to find comfort. And Father, we pray that you would help us, your church, and your other churches, to not become so engrossed by the fear of these conflicts, to not be so engrossed by winning or losing conflicts, to be not so captivated by things of this world that are passing away that we would forget your gospel in the midst of it. And yet we pray, Father, that we would be given wisdom by your Spirit. That we would have the ability to walk with the confidence of your uh, sovereign command of history while also being compelled by the Spirit of Christ to call out injustice and evil and sin. But Father, give us the confidence in Christ also not to merely call out sin and evil among nameless entities or individuals who are far off. But also in our neighbors, that they might hear and know the good news of Jesus and be saved. And also in our own hearts, that we would not walk as hypocrites, but would be faithful even to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. That's the last book in the New Testament. We're in chapter 2. We're at the end of chapter 2. And we are in a series of, uh, uh, in the book of Revelation that will take us through the spring, we'll take a break, and we'll come back to it in the fall and finish it up. That's uh, the plan, Lord willing. And right now we're in a section in the book of Revelations where, uh, 
book of Revelation, uh, where there are messages to various churches in the region, and uh, we are looking at verses 18 through 29 of chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to his works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I've been... Oops. All right, that's two, Travis. Um, <laughs> meaning he's told me not to do that. But um, <laughs> eh, it's okay. It's just electronics. I, I've been reading this week a bit about a, a, a pastor who's in jail, and uh, he's in jail quite simply because his government wanted him and his church to be. Patriots first, thanks. Uh, and Christians second. And he felt that that was incompatible with the Christian message. Rather, Christians believe that Jesus is Lord. And so we must offer our first allegiance to him. Not another man, not a state, not a political party, not a culture, but to Jesus. And to be sure that Christians believe that whatever governments and authorities are in existence are put into existence by God to promote justice and to promote human flourishing. But no government can bind the conscience. The point this pastor quite happily and readily made, even as he, he pledged loyal obedience to his government, but his loyalty to the state was not enough for that state because the state demanded absolute loyalty, and there could be no compromise. The pastor felt the need to articulate these things because there were many Christians who thought they could compromise with the government. If they gave the government the loyalty it desired, even if that meant some limitations and restrictions, they could carry on in ease with respect and good social standing. It was a pragmatic compromise, just taking a, a little bit of the honor that belongs to Jesus and giving it to the government, and in turn, they are considered good citizens and free to live relatively freely. But the pastor said there could be no compromise like this for Christ's church. Either Jesus was first, or the church did not have Jesus. Rightfully fearing that he might one day lose his freedom, this pastor wrote a letter for his church to release should he ever be unheard from for 48 hours. And that happened in late 2018. And after being held for a long time in 2020, he was sentenced 
after a secret trial to nine years in prison and a large fine. In the letter that was released by his church, he pledged his peaceful disobedience to the government's attempt to control the church. He wrote, separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one in the world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life, and no one can raise me from the dead. The pastor and his church's situation were not fundamentally different from what we read in our passage from Revelation 2 this morning about a church that was feeling the need to compromise its loyalties in order to exist as painlessly as possible in a hostile world. But this passage teaches us that there can be no compromise with our spiritual loyalty. It will destroy the church. But the church that surmounts compromise will share Christ's reign. The church that surmounts compromise will share Christ's reign. So like the other messages in this section uh, of the book of Revelation, the passage breaks down simply. Jesus is revealed, Jesus knows, Jesus rebukes, and Jesus encourages. So that's our outline. The Thyatirans are introduced to Jesus, who is Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, there are no portraits of Jesus in John's vision from chapter 1 that are subtle. They are awful. In the original sense that they are things that fill you with awe. There's a point at which something is so awesome that it becomes awful. And while we tend to use that word negatively, it isn't a negative term. It cuts both ways. The torrential rain and sweeping winds on a summer night that give way to a purple-red sky and the eerie hollow of a sudden still air in the minutes before the distant wail of a tornado siren. It is both beautiful and terrifying, depending on your perspective and how loud that siren is. That is Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. In chapter 1, he's, he, he's called the Son of Man, but both titles point to the deity of Jesus. And both are descriptions of heavenly figures from the book of Daniel. Neither term means that anyone or anything gave birth to Jesus. That's not the meaning. That's not the sense of the, the original Hebrew that would have lied behind those terms. Though, of course, Jesus was born of a human woman. woman but, but to be a son of man is a, is a Hebrew expression that means someone is human. And to be a son of God is a Hebrew expression to mean someone is divine. In short, Jesus is unique. He is the one who is both fully God and fully man, fully human. But there's more to this imagery still. Uh, in, in the book of Daniel, Son of God is used to describe this heavenly figure who is witnessed on earth, walking in the midst of a fire, protecting three Hebrew scholars who face persecution and being burned alive because of their religious faith. Many of you know that story from Daniel chapter 3. And later in the book, this uh, term son of man is used to describe a human-like figure who is seen by the prophet Daniel in a vision of the heavenly realm, a figure who receives authority and glory that belongs to God himself. 
And so both of those pictures are important for how Jesus reveals himself to Thyatira. Jesus' eyes are like a flame of fire. Fire was a symbol of judgment and purification in the scriptures. So Jesus' eyes are depicted as seeing with perfect clarity what needs to be burned away, what remained imperfect in his church. His feet are like burnished bronze. In other words, like a, like a precious metal that has gone through the trial of fire and shown to be perfect. It makes you think back to that heavenly figure who walked in King Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace without harm. But it also represents that he himself is morally pure, perfect, and able to stand strong among his people. Everything else may move, but the one whose feet are a burnished bronze will not be moved. So this again is an auspicious picture of Jesus. Why is he looking like he's about to judge in power? Maybe it has something to do with the situation in Thyatira. So let's turn to what Jesus knows. Jesus is aware of the works of the church in Thyatira. What does that mean? We are probably tempted to think about good works, good deeds that, that uh, they have done for other people or for each other. Maybe we think they are respectful. Maybe we think they are polite. Maybe we think that they have kept the Ten Commandments. But as good as those things are, that's not what Jesus means. He explains what he means by the word works with the next group of nouns. Their works are their faith and love and service and patient endurance. Those are the works that Jesus is talking about. And Thyatira is interesting too because if you remember the, the church in Ephesus earlier in the chapter, it had great love once upon a time, and that great love had begun to wane over time. But the works in the church of Thyatira are only growing over time. So that's considerable praise. So let's dig in then what that means. Uh, love is mentioned. Says, for, for Christians, you know, love, love is not an emotion for Christians. It's, not, it's just not an emotion, period. It's not a feeling. Love is a commitment to sacrifice your own priorities for another person. John, who recorded the book of Revelation and four other books in the Bible, stressed Jesus' own teaching on that idea of love throughout those five books. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 15, he records Jesus' teachings to his disciples. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So followers of Jesus are supposed to love each other the way that Jesus loved his followers. And how did Jesus love his followers? Well, John reminds us of that in one of his letters that we call 1 John. He says, in this is the love of God. In this the love of God was made manifest, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The greatest love of all was that Jesus came to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, that's a really big word. So what does John mean by propitiation? Well, 
to propitiate someone or something is to turn away their anger and their hostility and to restore peace. Jesus is the propitiation for sins. And that's because God is justly and rightly furious about our sinfulness, our evil. Each of us has evil in us, of, of course. But, but God is holy and he's perfect. And he made us to be like him. And so our evil is actually an insult to God. It is a rebellion against his good and kind rule. And God must put down our insurrection or he would be an unjust and not good God. It would be silly to argue, oh, but my rebellion is just a small rebellion. God desires to restore peace and goodness to his creation. And that means there can be no rebellion. If earthly rebels have received harsh punishments from earthly kings, how much more will spiritual rebels receive from the spiritual king? Our sin is deserving of a spiritual death sentence. But Jesus, because he is without sin, he had no rebellion, was able to do something special. Because he loved his people so much, he took the punishment for their rebellion on himself by dying on the cross. God's wrath, his anger, was poured out on Jesus and satisfied. God's wrath was propitiated. That's what that means. And because of that, Jesus Followers can escape God's judgment. His anger and wrath has been turned away from Jesus' people. Jesus died for his followers. That is the greatest love. And Christians are called to imitate that love. Even as Jesus sacrificed everything to rescue us, so we are called to sacrifice everything for the sake of those that Jesus loves. And at times, that might mean giving from our lack for the sake of someone who has even less. Uh, at times, that might mean patiently consoling someone who is hurting and, and has long since gotten on your nerves, but you love them because Jesus loves them. And at other times, that might mean you give up your own life, making Jesus known among the people Jesus is calling to follow him. In the same way that Christian love is deeper and more costly than the love of this world, faith is also a far richer idea for Christians than most people realize. Most people think that faith is believing something without evidence, but that is not really what Christian faith is all about. Christian faith does involve intellectual commitments, what we would call beliefs. And some of those beliefs cannot be proved using the scientific method. But that doesn't mean that we don't have evidence for those beliefs. In fact, I would argue there is tremendous evidence for the things that we hold to be true. But that's another message. The thing is, is that even by the scientific method, or by using our senses, or by using logic and reason, we believe many, many, many things that we still struggle with. Some people may know that a snake is harmless, but be absolutely terrified by this snake nonetheless. Why? Because they don't have faith that the snake won't harm them. Faith starts with belief, but it does not end with belief. Faith requires trust. Faith requires trust in the facts that we know to be true. 
That is why Christian faith is both belief and trust. We do not just believe certain things to be true, but we trust in those things and their implications. More importantly, we trust in the person behind those facts. We believe that Jesus is God over all, Savior of the world, the Lord of life. We believe that he knows all and that he is perfectly righteous. And if he is Lord and God, knowing all things and is perfectly good, then Christian faith demands that we trust him with our lives. And when he tells us what is good, we trust him. And we act accordingly. And when he tells us what is evil, we trust him and we act accordingly. Where he goes, we follow. And that sort of trust may seem inconsequential when it's relatively easy to follow Jesus. If Jesus commands me to go to church, and there are many churches near me, and those churches are easy to access and broadly encouraged by the culture, well, it may seem like no big thing to trust Jesus in going to church. But when there are significant costs to following Jesus, the faithful churches are far away or hard to find. When attending the church is risky or my social standing or my career opportunities or my life could be jeopardized by attending a church, then it'll be more clear whether I trust Jesus or not. This sort of faith comes very close to faithfulness, doesn't it? And that is the faith the Christians in Thyatira had. It wasn't an easy place, as we'll see, to be a Christian, but they trusted Jesus when their city and their culture told them something else was good. And just like them, we must decide whether we will listen to Christ or we will listen to culture. Christ also commends the church in Thyatira because he's aware of their service. Service might be very closely connected to this idea of love because although the Greeks had many words for service and enslavement, this word emphasized the personal nature of the service. So a servant in this sense, someone giving service in this way, might be someone like a hired hand, like a, a butler or a waiter. But since the Christian does this work voluntarily and the, and the Christian does this work without compensation, you could see how this would be an outworking of the sacrificial love that was displayed by Christ himself. In the New Testament, this service is almost always a love that is shown by Christians for other Christians, even Christians they have never met and never seen. In fact, it's this word that gives us the English word deacon, and it's connected to works of practical help, financial contributions to Christians who are suffering. And when the word isn't focused on Christians serving other Christians, it's often connected to the ministry of the gospel, the plan of making Jesus known to more and more people. So whether through putting other Christians' priorities ahead of their own, or through making Jesus known at great personal cost, the Christians in Thyatira were well known to Jesus for their service. And then finally, we have their patient endurance. In Paul's letters, endurance is often connected to hope. For Christians, especially those facing persecution, for those facing suffering, there's a deep and eager longing for home. And that hope is with Jesus in another kingdom. It's no wonder that for generations of faithful Christians living in America under the oppression of slavery, their songs reflected yearning for another time and another place. The now anonymous 
Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, or Samuel Stennett's on Jordan's Stormy Banks I Stand, or Charles Albert Tinley's Beams of Heaven, Charles Price Jones's Where Shall I Be? All give a voice to the Christian's confident expectation of a better country to which we belong. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, speaking of all these faithful men and women who had gone before, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. When we have faith, faith that is not merely belief, but is trust in the promises of the Son of God, then we are empowered to patiently endure even in the face of great suffering. Because we have confidence that what is before us is better than what is around us and behind us. And because hopelessness is not a Christian response, Christians are called to patient endurance of the pains in this life. We might not know what the future looks like, but as the Gaithers sang, we know who holds the future. And we know that that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So in these four things, the Christians in, in fire tire are encouraging us today. We are called to be a people filled with these works, these works of love and faith and service and patient endurance. But these aren't traits that come easily to those who are in love with this world. They're the traits of a people who know that this world is not their home. But that doesn't fully account for the situation in Thyatira, does it? There's a problem, and it's introduced with that word, that giant but. But I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So let's dig in on that. This rebuke from Jesus is very similar to the one that he gave the church in Pergamum in the verses we looked at last week. But oh, both of these passages involve these two ideas of sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, we don't know a lot about Thyatira. It was a smaller city. It was less important than these other six. But, but from what uh, I can gather, the trade guilds in Thyatira were a really important part of civic life. They were important throughout the Roman Empire, but it was a particularly big deal in Thyatira. Trade guilds are a lot what you might think of today. They were associations of people involved in the same profession, whether bakers or flute players or metal workers. And they would often help to maintain certain standards of quality and craftsmanship. Uh, but they also controlled who could practice the trade. So uh, if you were on the inns with them, uh, you could do business. But if you were not a member of the trade guild, you could not do business. Of course, being in uh, ancient Rome, trade guilds were intimately connected with the worship of Roman gods. Feasts were common. And so the problem in Thyatira was probably most specifically the feasts that these various trade guilds had to their patron deities. Those feasts would have included food offered to those false gods and would have likely included raucous sexual activity. The word for Sexual immorality, by the way, is the Greek word porneia. 
It's where we get words like pornography. It's a general word for sexual behavior that falls outside of God's norms. And in the ancient Jewish context, which the Christians came out of and fully adopted, it, it would have referred to any sexual activity outside the boundaries God established by a husband and a wife. And we don't have a ton of details about Thyatira specifically, but we know enough about the Roman Empire at this time to know that sexual activity outside the strong bond of a marriage was incredibly common. As sex-crazed as we think modern society is, it's probably still a ways off from ancient Rome. And participating in this idolatrous worship would have been a violation of the first and second commandments. Sexual immorality would have been a violation of the seventh commandment. And so this is a serious situation. But Jesus' rebuke, it isn't phrased as being first and foremost concerned about the evil activity. Jesus' rebuke is focused on the church tolerating someone who is leading Christians into this sin. Jesus isn't rebuking the trade guilds in ancient Thyatira. He's rebuking the church for tolerating this false teaching. So who is this person and what's her story? Jesus calls this person Jezebel, but that's almost certainly not her name. It's a woman. It's a specific woman. It's that woman. It was someone the Christians in Thyatira would have immediately known, they would have recognized, they would have known exactly who Jesus was talking about. He calls her Jezebel because her actions are similar to those of a woman named Jezebel in the Old Testament. Molly read a little bit of that this morning. Uh, her whole history in the Bible is too long to read as an extra passage this morning, especially when there's a Super Bowl coming. She's not the focus of this sermon. Most of her history is in 1 Kings chapter 16 through 21. But she's even still a problem later on in 2 Kings chapter 9. She was the daughter of the king of Tyre, uh, a man named Ethbaal, Eth who married Ahab, the king of Israel. And that's an immediate red flag. It's not that the Israelites were prohibited from marrying people of another nation, but they were prohibited from marrying people who worshipped false gods. So it wasn't an ethnic or national prohibition, it was a religious prohibition. The concern was that your love for this person is going to lead you to compromise your religious convictions. And her father's name, Ethbaal, means something like toward Baal. Maybe the understanding would be that his orientation of his life was toward Baal. Baal is the name of the most prominent god worshipped in that region at that time. And the apple didn't fall far from the tree. King Ahab is definitely portrayed in Scripture as a terrible leader. He is incredibly sinful, incredibly weak, incredibly incompetent. And his marriage to Jezebel is just the tip of the iceberg. But there's no question that Jezebel was particularly cruel herself. When Ahab seemed weak and indecisive, Jezebel was there to bring out his worst instincts. At times, she committed horrible crimes that Ahab himself didn't even think to do. Did he correct her? 
Did he put her down? Did he put her out? No. He tolerated those crimes. They were to his benefit, after all. And rather than bringing Jezebel, his, his wife, to worship Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, Ahab followed her to worship Baal. And over time, the Israelites were led astray by this ancient queen. She reputedly had installed hundreds of prophets in the royal court to worship both Baal and his spiritual consort, Asherah. She killed most of the prophets of the Lord. And only a few true worshipers of Yahweh were left in Israel. Most of the people were compromised by following Jezebel's example. So in Revelation 2, Jesus calls this unnamed woman Jezebel because she's doing something similar. She is in the midst of God's people. She's in the church, and she is teaching people and leading people astray to engage in this false worship and this sexual immorality. Most likely, it's a little speculative, but it's really not a lot if we know the context. Most likely, she's saying that this participation in the pagan celebrations of the trade guilds and maybe some of the other civic worship that was part of the Roman life. Participation in those things was acceptable for the Christians. After all, if you, if you refuse to participate, there's a good chance they would have been unable to practice their crafts, unable to learn, earn, earn a living. They would have become destitute. This woman claimed to be a prophet. And the early Christian communities highly respected true prophets. So that wasn't a problem. But Jesus says she is not what she claims to be. She was false and she was dangerous. I want to pause there for just a moment because if this sounds a little different, um, some of you may have heard, if you haven't, no big deal, just a warning that you might. Uh, some of you may have heard about something called a Jezebel spirit. Now, if you haven't heard of that, I think you're better off for it, in my opinion. But in some circles, there are people who believe that a Jezebel spirit is a demonic influence that causes strife and dissension. Sometimes it almost seems like in those groups, it's an easy way to label someone who disagrees with you. But I hope it's clear that that's not what John is saying here. There's no Jezebel spirit here. That's never mentioned in the Bible. There's just a woman who is called Jezebel because her habits and teachings have a similar effect to, the one, to one of the most wicked individuals recorded in the Bible who had that name. She's not just causing disputes as if she's causing people to argue about paint colors or how to redecorate the children's room or something. She's literally teaching people to practice evil. It's kind of serious. Well, Jesus' rebuke is that Christians tolerate it. It's not that they've all followed her. It's that even those that did not follow her have allowed her to continue on. You know, a decade or two ago, tolerance was the greatest virtue of our culture. The greatest sin was intolerance. And I'm, I'm thankful that it, it feels like the tides are beginning to change a bit. But unfortunately, our culture doesn't seem to know what to replace that with. We understand that we can't tolerate certain things, but our culture doesn't have a consistent moral foundation to stand on any longer. And so it struggles to justify its very selective intolerance. And of course, its intolerance is often misplaced. But intolerance can actually be a virtue. Precisely because toleration of evil is intolerance of good. And that is unacceptable for a Christian community. Yet don't we see people who call themselves Christian flirting with evil because they feared the repercussions of saying no to that evil, whether personally or professionally 
or civically. This can't be. It's hard to imagine, though, that a church like Thyatira, that was marked by love and faith and service and patient endurance, would be persuaded by a bold-faced lie. I doubt that this Jezebel was walking to the church one day and said, guys, we should just all go to Zeus's house and worship Zeus. That would be, that'd be great after church activity. All right. she's, she's not that bold face. I think it's reasonable to assume that the teaching that she offered was more subtle. And because it was subtle, it required careful thinking about the implications of what she was saying. And because what she taught was so subtly subversive, there's a chance that speaking up against her would have led some Christians in Thyatira to say that those who were trying to faithfully follow Jesus those ones are the divisive ones. America in 2024 is definitely a culture that does not like to have difficult or complicated conversations. We find them awkward. We would rather not rock the boat, we would say. We, we would rather not get people upset. And if we suspect that people would get upset, all the more we would prefer to not say anything at all. But church, when there is a problem, the one who speaks up is not the one causing division. Of course, there are ways to speak up that cause unnecessary division. But what I mean is that when there's a real spiritual problem, identifying it, calling it out, is not divisive. It's unifying. See, in order to be unified, we must be focused on the same person, Jesus Christ, with the same heart, the glory of God, in the proclamation of the gospel. If someone loses sight of that, then there is a division, whether anyone brings it up or not. It's not a question of whether there's going to be division. It's a question of whether we're going to acknowledge the division that already exists. Staying quiet, not addressing it, that won't prevent division. It actually allows division to fester. Instead, in love, we are called to call out that spiritual hypocrisy precisely so that we can preserve unity and so we can save lives. You know that Jesus taught what the Old Testament taught, love your neighbor as yourself. Go find that in your Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus. One verse before that, in a paragraph amidst a large number of laws on how to love your neighbor God says this, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Or as the, the Net Bible puts it, and I think it's a little bit more clear, you must surely reprove your fellow citizen so that you do not incur sin on account of him. Rebuke. Correction, speaking up. There is a type of intolerance that is actually love because it is hatred to see another person going headfirst into destruction and saying nothing about it. Love demands action, and sometimes love means intolerance. The church in Thyatira needed to practice what we would call church discipline. First, by gently correcting this woman and those who followed her, and then moving to more direct rebukes, and then, if necessary, with prayer and with tears, removing her from the church so that she does not destroy others. That's the job of the church. They needed to stop being tolerant and start being a little intolerant. 
And there's a tendency right now. I, I don't know how connected these are. I'll just say it's interesting to me that we see both of these things happening at the same time. But there's a tendency right now for those of us who are Americans, these, these American Christians, to believe in a false Jesus. Or at least a perverted Jesus. To want a Jesus who is for America above all else. And they seem to believe that salvation is found in the United States of America. They want Jesus to be a patriot and not a poor prophet. I thought, I, I knew I had seen some strange images, and I wanted to pull up one that I thought I had remembered, if I could describe it for you for this sermon. And I googled something maybe I shouldn't have. Jesus American flag. And then I clicked on images. And it was way worse than I thought. But disgusting perversions of the name of Jesus, countless varieties of ways to make Jesus into something he was not, is not, and never claimed to be. I couldn't even begin to choose which image was the worst. And at the same time, we have been witnessing those with the name of Jesus who call themselves Christians engaging in horrific acts of sexual abuse. And we've seen that too often some people think that those things are better left unspoken. Maybe in the name of unity, which isn't unity at all, or in the name of mission, or the name of who knows whatever manner or variety of reasons but these abuses go unreported, undiscussed, unstated, or frankly, covered up. I don't know if these impulses are connected. Maybe someone smarter than me can connect the dots. I just find it interesting that we seem to be fighting against this idolatrous version of Jesus at the same time that we see so much cover-up of sexual immorality. I can't find a logical connection, but connected or not, church, we have to be willing to stand up and become a bit intolerant. And we must choose that this church, at least, will not become a place of idolatry and will not become a place of sexual immorality. That's the job of the church. As for that woman Jezebel and those who followed her, those who compromised themselves in idolatry and compromised themselves in sexual immorality, there's something only they can do. The church can work as one to be intolerant of this false teaching, but as for those people that went in with that false teaching, they must act as individuals and repent. Jesus says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. When Jesus says he throws, he'll throw her onto a sickbed, it's likely he means he's going to throw her into a, an illness that ends in death. And there's two ways to read that, right? One is that although she's been given time to repent, though she has refused to repent up until now, there's still hope for her. And the other way to read that is, there's hope for those who followed her, but her time is up. But either way, it's a, it's a sobering reminder that persistent rejection of the truth about Jesus ends in destruction. Death is the penalty for sin, and eventually death catches up with all of us. As Hebrews says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. But as for those other Christians who followed this woman that is called Jezebel, they have space to repent. To repent means to turn. You go from facing away from God to facing toward God, from running 
away from God to running toward God. You go from rejecting God and refusing to trust him to embracing him and trusting him. And these Christians needed to abandon the teachings of this woman who seems to have said they can have their cake and eat it too. They could follow Jesus and still worship the false gods. That was what she was telling them. They could follow Jesus and still have immoral sexual relations. No. They needed to trust Jesus that his ways were better. And that's what repentance means. Jesus warns, Jesus rebukes, but Jesus also encourages. So following the the pattern we've seen throughout these letters, to those who have not followed this fake prophet Jezebel, Jesus says he lays no other burden, just that need to stop tolerating the false teaching. They were to continue in their patient endurance so that they hold fast what they have until he comes. But listen to what Jesus says to them as an encouragement to press on, to hold fast until he comes. Jesus says, because this is an encouragement to us as well, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when, earth, as within, as when earthen pots are broken to pieces. These words are a paraphrase, nearly a quotation from the second psalm, which Gloria read for us this morning, which prophesied the Messiah's rule over all the nations of the earth. But what's shocking is that it's not the Messiah, Jesus, who is reigning. It's his church. His church is going to be given authority over the nations. They share in the reign of Jesus Christ over the earth. We will share in his victory. We will share in his righteous and peaceful reign. Now, the idea of conquering here, like before, like we talked about in previous weeks, is about conquering sin. And in Thyatira's case, it's focused on the sin of compromise, the sin of tolerating evil. That sin must be uh, conquered. That sin must be overcome. But in an ironic twist, conquering sin leads to sharing in Christ's reign. If the church surmounts compromise, it will share in Christ's reign. What motivation to persevere and to overcome sin? What an encouragement to battle with the flesh and to hold fast to the end. We will reign with Christ. But Jesus leaves us with one more thing that I want to leave you with. Because Jesus says, I will give him the morning star. What does that mean? Well, in chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus says, I, speaking of himself, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now, to go through all the text would take a while. But the morning star imagery paints Jesus as a divine king. But what's striking is that what Jesus gives to, him, gives to his church is himself. Jesus is the morning star. Jesus gives to his church the bright morning star. Jesus' gift to his church is himself. Jesus himself is our greatest treasure. He is worth more than all of the pleasures and the comforts of this life. He is worth enduring all the trials and pains that might come on us in this life.
if we had nothing else but we had Jesus, it would be worth it. Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. Father, would you uh, steal us to do battle against compromise in a culture that values so much having superficial peace. May we not become a church that tolerates evil. Father, if there is any wicked way in us, a gateway, if there is any place where we have tolerated evil, where we have allowed it to go unchecked, we may have allowed it to fester, to grow in our ranks, and to threaten to pull us into all sorts of evil with its teachings. Would you strengthen us to root it out, to call it out, to draw those individuals to repentance that they might be saved, that they might be free, that they might be whole. Give us the strength to hold fast what we have to the end that we might share in the reign of our King and our Christ Jesus, whom we love. It's in his name we pray. Amen.